Restaurants Unstoppable, episode 535, with Anthony Mint. Success or failure is not about more locations or more trying out a new idea or these things. For me, success is about the restaurant accomplishing what I believe in. Are you ready for it? Factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Wouldn't it be great if you could play music directly from your Spotify account in your own restaurant without worrying about being pinched by the music police? Well, guess what? With Soundtrack, your brand, you can. Unlike Spotify Premium, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack, your brand is licensed for business use. And with SoundtrackYourBrand.com, you can import your favorite music from Spotify and share them directly with your guests. This deal typically goes for $26.99, but if you act now, you can get this deal for $19.99 per month per location for life. Get on it. Again, that's soundtrackyourbrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. You got to check out Wisetail, a premier learning management system. Wisetail is a forward-thinking training and communication platform built to engage today's workforce. Wisetail is trusted because it grew up alongside some of the most recognized restaurants in the industry, this has helped them shape their product and its functionality through real-world feedback and rigorous testing. Wisetail can help you scale your training initiatives across all locations while empowering your employees to take control of their learning and their professional growth. To learn more, head over to www.wisetail.com unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. And if you use my links, you'll get your first three months free after signing up for a year contract. Again, that's wisetail.com slash unstoppable. Yo, what's going on, guys? I just wanted to uh, give you a heads up that the audio quality today was a little rocky. However, the content is really significant. Uh, There's some really strong arguments in today's conversation, uh, some really positive outlooks and some really valuable knowledge that our guest Anthony Mint shares. So please power through the poor audio quality and I promise you, you'll be a better person at the end of today's conversation. All right, here it is. All right, with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Anthony Mint. My man, Chef, are you feeling unstoppable today? Uh, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> All right. That's what we like to hear. Chef Anthony Mint hails from Annandale, Virginia, and is a graduate of Carleton College, where he majored in economics and Asian studies. After a few years eating, or sorry, just a year eating around the world, Mint found himself cooking the line at Bar Tartine in San Francisco, California. Ten years of much success later, uh, Mint is the co-founder of Zero Foot Foodprint, the perennial in Mission Chinese food. Together, the perennial and Zero Foodprint are going to create a circular food economy where all restaurants can be a part of a solution to the climate change. So chef, I'm going to pass it over to you to get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you have for us? Sure. Well, so I feel like um, a good mantra would be uh, two, maybe twofold. Yeah. Uh, One is feel free to get in over your head and then figure out how to get out of that. Um, I feel like that's kind of how a lot of our my career kind of arc 
has taken place. It's just sort of jumping in and then figuring things out. Um, the other, uh, and I think this is quoting Stanley or Spider-Man, is uh, with great power comes great responsibility. I love it, man. I think that's a great way to get started. Just uh, the first quote, getting over your head, it reminds me of fake it till you make it. Just you don't need to know all the answers. Just start. And as you start, the you'll you'll do the research. It, it, the research is going to be hard at first, but just starting is the hardest part. And over time, it gets easier and easier. And again, I think, you know, kind of reminds me of this, the compassionate capitalism or conscious capitalism. If you're doing well, it's your responsibility to share that wealth uh, to, into to to make it about everybody, not, not just yourself. That's kind of what I picked up from those two quotes. Do you agree? Sure, totally. Um, I mean, food, when you consider all the things, agriculture, deforestation to produce food, storage, transportation, processing, food waste, food is half of all the emissions. Yes. So man. the restaurant industry is the biggest part of the food system in the U.S. from an economic perspective. It's bigger than farming. It's bigger than retail. And so... If you think about those two things in conjunction, food is half of climate change. The restaurant industry is the biggest part. Think about what the restaurant industry is doing about climate change. Not too much. Yeah, not too much. <laughs> so I, but that represents a major opportunity. Um, so that's, that's really what's exciting for me, too. Not just is it like a big monetary factor. It's also the most agile part of the food system. So, you know, you imagine like Rene Redzepi starts foraging or something in Copenhagen. Five years later, everyone's foraging. Like 15 years ago, chefs started using kale and quinoa and stuff. Now that stuff's on the aisle uh, in Walmart. Yeah. So I think there's potential for really quick change, especially in today's kind of social media age, uh, if we just get rolling on it. Yeah, and you just you, you you hit it right there. Today, it's more exciting. We live in a time that's more exciting than ever before because of the the opportunity we have to make change because we can share knowledge faster than ever before when we when we recognize that we're doing something wrong we can instantly rally together get behind a cause and make change happen uh and a lot of people you know it's, it's kind of are, are worried and stressed out but i'm really hopeful for the future because of these things you're pointing out because we can make a difference i think the restaurant industry is going to be at the leading edge of that and i'm right there with you uh, i can't wait to kind of dive deeper into uh, the mission that you guys currently have right now, but I really want to set the listeners up with who you are, what you're all about, and, and how you got to where you are today, and kind of uh, maybe pull some business nuggets from you and some, and just kind of get at the core of who you are, so we can try to be more like you, right? So, where did it all start for for you? Uh, was it after your your trip around the world? Did you just was that part? Uh, was this trip part of your, I guess, uh, mission to get into the restaurant industry, or did it just kind of happen? Um. Well, I grew up watching cooking shows with my grandmother and, you know, my, my dad was an entrepreneur. My mom was an entrepreneur. And so I think part of that was like in my DNA. Um, and then, you know, basically after you, after you kind of see a little bit more of the world, you see like, oh, here's people who like make it work in whatever situation they're in. Uh, and it's not kind of just this suburban Virginia lifestyle where you go and get a job and sit behind a desk in an office or whatever. So, um, you know, I think I had always had an interest in food and not necessarily thought of that as a career path. Um, but kind of the way entrepreneurs think or people think it's, you know, or I think is sort of just like, why doesn't someone just do X, Y, or Z? And so, you know, uh, I was a line cook a great restaurant in San Francisco called Bar Tartine. Um, I'd been there for about four years and then basically 
there was a taco truck that was not in use on Thursdays. And so, you know, I thought, oh, why doesn't someone just, you know, rent that and serve more interesting stuff? And if you think about it, this this was in 2008. So this was before there were gourmet taco trucks, really. Um, something must have been in the zeitgeist because, like, that same month when we were doing that, the Kogi taco truck began in Los Angeles. And so that really kind of kicked things off. We did that really, really briefly just for, like, four weeks. But each week it was, like, more and more popular. Um, like, this happened to be at the time when food blogs were cool and stuff. And so people... Somebody blogged about it. It got picked up by the local kind of food press, uh, eater.com. You know, next thing you know, eater.com is writing a story because we're serving brownies or, you know, brownies with free cheese on top. And, like, it's ridiculous that that, like, in hindsight, all these pastry chefs were doing amazing stuff in the city, you know, and they picked that up. But I think, again, that sort of speaks towards, like, the potential for new media and social media to help kind of, like, uh, snowball an interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm curious if you were having really great success, why only why did it only last a couple of months? Why did you get out of it so quick? Why not lean into that? Um, well basically we were coming up on winter and there's often like a rainy month. And you know, for me it was like working well, I had a full time job, so I was working before work, after work to prep every single day. Uh, you know, the last week I think we sold like two hundred and twenty sandwiches. Um and it was all cash. And so sort of there, this fear of like, oh man, what if it rains? You know, what if someone mugs me? Um, and then also that week, uh, basically like a crazy douchebag from the real estate company right next door, you know, rode up in his BMW convertible and was sort of like yelling at everybody, seemed to be like on drugs or whatever, and like called the police. You know, everybody standing in line got tickets for, you know, drinking a beer while in like a brown paper bag while standing in line. And all this stuff. And so it just seemed like kind of a, a hassle and a fight that I didn't want to have every single week. And like, you know, it would be soul crushing to like be working like 40 hours overtime and then have something bad happen one way or another. So we just walked door to door in the neighborhood and looked for um, a restaurant that was underutilized. And we happened upon this like hole in the wall Chinese restaurant with crazy, like psychedelic, you know, Chairman Mao type of posters and kitschy stuff and like fluorescent lights and they had a beer and wine license and it just seemed like, you know, man, I could really imagine this being like a fun environment. Um, so then we, we asked them like, Hey, could we use your restaurant on Thursdays to serve different food? And they were basically like, you know, this is in kind of broken Chinese and they were basically like, hmm, well, we sell some food to go. So could we share the kitchen? Uh, and they were like, okay, sure. And they were like, all right, let's try it. And so like, it was a five minute conversation. And then we started getting ready for food service. Uh, and so this, this basically became a pop-up. And so we did 140 events like that with guest chefs doing half the menu and us doing half the menu, you know, but again, this was, this was in 2008. And so if you think back to then, there weren't really pop-ups. So in some ways, you know, I would say this was like the first pop-up, like the first successful pop-up. Yeah. It's really interesting. And I kind of, I kind of like to preach this whole idea of scaling, starting as small as you can, testing a concept and, and seeing if you have something, seeing if you have something that's, that sticks. And during these early days of, of doing the, the food 
carts or doing the pop-ups, you can start developing your brand, getting your name out there and developing your tribe, right? And it, it takes next to no overhead to start developing your reputation and just getting involved in your community and doing little side hustles here and there to see what sticks, right? Was that kind of going on in the back of your head or were you just kind of having fun? I mean, honestly, we definitely did not think of it as a career move. We were just having fun. Yeah, um, which is another huge part of it, too, because you were yeah. doing this all on your own. This was all overtime for you after working full-time at uh, Bar Tartine, right? Yeah, it was my wife and I, and my wife was a student in the English program at UC Berkeley at the time. And so we, you know, we had always thought, like, oh, she'll get a job as a professor, and she's incredibly smart, great student. Uh, she was like top of the class and all this stuff, you know, like we'll get a job as a professor and I'll like be a cook or a chef or something in, in whatever college town that is. Uh, but instead it happened to be during the economic recession and there were no professor jobs available and we were doing all this stuff and it was like building momentum. And so the pop-up uh, eventually became mission Chinese food, um, which, you know, it is now eight years old. So it may not be as like, well-known or infamous as it was, but for a minute there, it was like extraordinarily popular. Um, my co-founder at Mission Chinese, the executive chef, Danny Bowen, is now like on Mind of a Chef season six. He moved to New York, opened there in a Thai takeout window. And that, you know, humble little takeout window with a plywood beer garden uh, won New York Times Restaurant of the Year in 2012. And so I think it really speaks towards like the possibility again in the yeah. restaurant industry. And I kind of want to dive deeper into that story of getting uh, of developing Mission Chinese food, but we can't just skim over uh, the lessons learned at Bar Tartine because, from what I can gather, this is kind of your first restaurant gig, like serious restaurant gig. Were you working in restaurants when you were younger? No, that was my first. Um, I mean, I had I talked my way into like a prep job somewhere and then I was a catering manager at like a sandwich shop um, and then basically bar tartine was my first fine dining job and I was kind of like the last man on the line like the last hire you know I think they they started with the plan of having four stations and then they cut down to three stations so for a while I was more or less like unemployed and then was I found a different job in a fine dining place you know kind of helping with the oyster bar I had never shot oysters before, so that was a real learning curve. Um, you know, but eventually uh, got my got my spot in the pantry at Bar Tartine. Uh, for a minute, I was like, geez, I'll never be able to do this. It's really, I, I can't move that fast, all this stuff. Uh, started drinking coffee, started getting faster, started, <laughs> started like learning, like, you know, how to almost like be zen about cooking and just you know, be in like a flow instead of like having to like actively think really hard about each step. This is probably the biggest transformative time for you in your career because you're kind of being thrown into the mix. You're learning who are the mentors, who are the people that you were learning from? What were the big takeaways from uh, this eight years? Was it 2004 to 2010, six years uh, that you were at Bar Tartine or did you leave in 2008? Yeah, it was like 2005 to eight or something. Okay. 2005 to 2009 or so. it was four years about so you had three to four years uh, of restaurant experience before opening your own place. I mean, you had to pick up some lessons, right? So what were the big takeaways you, you, you got? Any serious mentors during this time you can shine light on? Well, you know, honestly, we, uh, my mentors are Jason Fox, a great chef who you know, has a Michelin star at a restaurant called Commonwealth that we helped him open. 
and the line cuts at the time. Uh, but I mean, really, that was just the time when like you could start looking at food on the internet. And so I feel like, you know, for sure, I, I learned a lot from that. And, you know, really, it was sort of trying to find a balance between uh, delicious and no frills. And so I think that, and like a sense of humor. And so I think that for us, there's kind of this running uh, sentiment of like the high-low, you know, like duck confit nachos or whatever. Like, why does it have to be like a crepe? Why can't it be like the food that we all crave, but using fine dining techniques? So I think that was sort of some of the guiding principle behind Mission Street Food and Mission Chinese Food. So when you say some of that was the mission, are you talking about just making food that was approachable, like the high-low, combining uh, things that are somewhat foreign with things that are somewhat familiar, so it's it's approachable? No, the high-low, like um, like fine dining and haute cuisine technique and flavor combinations and sensibilities with like approach, yeah, approachable stuff. But you know, mostly just I would say not being afraid of fusion, but not fusion like mango salsa or kiwi or whatever, like kind of exoticism fusion, uh, kind of like fusion that is, you know, down to the technique and, and like the ideas behind the food instead of like the, you know, the sauce on top. Okay. So any other big lessons that you drew working with this restaurant from these people that you were working under? Um, no, I mean, those, those were the things we, we sort of put ourselves in a position to just learn by doing. So, you know, what we learned really quickly is like we could not do a full-time job while also preparing for a super busy restaurant on the side. And so we decided to sort of open things up to get chefs to come do half the menu. And so we had, we started a blog, we invited chefs and line cooks to come do half the menu. You know, at that time, you know, if you ever like go out to the bar with line cooks and these things, I feel like we were constantly i was constantly like in these conversations where people were just shit talking this or that you know and so i just thought like geez as soon as we give these people an opportunity to like come play chef for a night like there's going to be a hundred applications how am i even going to choose who's going to who's going to be the guest chef next week make the announcement zero applications like literally nobody total crickets and like so that was a real slap in the face and a real shock but then we would go out and talk with people and like soon one person would be like, okay, yeah, I'll do it. You know, and then another, and then another. And then we kind of created like a pipeline and a calendar of people doing guest chefs. And they were not always like glamorous chefs. Like some, some nights were not the strongest guest chefs. And I felt like I had to carry the menu. Other nights were like really strong guys. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of Michelin stars have passed through uh, this weird all on the wall Chinese restaurant as guest chefs. So, it's it's really interesting. So th- this whole concept um, is sounds kind of like a pop up. Like it's a it's almost like a crowdsourced restaurant where you're looking at the community of chefs to crowdsource the menu. And but but there's also a lot of benefit from this because it's not just about you. You're making it about everybody in your community. And when you invite other people to stand on your platform, they're going to share the event, right? And you you I feel like it's just a natural way to kind of snowball and build momentum and to create a, awareness. Was that your plan or was that just a byproduct of this this uh this, I hate the word concept, but you know, of what you were trying to do? Yeah, well we know, we didn't really know how long it was going to go. So for us it was just going week to week. <clears throat> um but looking back, you know, I would say 
like, yeah, that would be a brilliant way to kind of market and build community. Um, we also had um, basically Karen, my wife, and I just took like 400 bucks each event for like a week's worth of work. And then, you know, the guest chefs made their money and then all the rest of the proceeds went to local charities, like a different one each month. Um, and so that was another way to kind of build community and, you know, do something we believed in and sort of uh, almost like have a story because each week we would be blogging about what we were doing. So it would be like, you know, this week it's Mediterranean food by such and such chef and all proceeds going to XYZ charity, you know, and that's, that's like a way to get 50 extra people in the door and, and help make uh, the, you know, the whole service viable. That's interesting. I think you, you touched on something else that's really important, developing that storyline and uh, keeping people up to date and, and just sharing what you're doing and not, you know, just opening a window up into your life. Like this is what we got going on and being transparent uh, is so powerful. Uh, you, you tapped on a few other things we haven't really gone deep into yet. Uh, you were also providing profits to the community. 75 cents for every dollar for every entree was going to a food bank, right? Was this was, so was that where you were yeah. using to get people to get on board this, this idea of getting involved in the community? No, we ended up, that's our model now at mission. Oh, okay. Chinese. Okay. I gotcha. Gotcha. Uh, because now it's like a stable situation. It's essentially like a permanent pop-up. Um, and I mean, I'm really proud of that because we've raised over a million meals for the San Francisco food bank. That's incredible, man. You know, like if you think about this little hole in the wall Chinese restaurant, like I think that speaks towards like the potential for just small actions and commitments to kind of aggregate into broader systems change. So earlier on, uh, you were actually just uh, choosing uh, charities to donate to, and you decided to streamline that process by just saying seventy-five yeah, cents. Plus ready is my order going to show up in the table? Um, but basically, like a few cents from each diner. Uh, through zero footprint is going towards environmental projects that reverse climate change. Okay, cool. Um, so anything else? So at what point, it sounds like at this point you're, you're kind of being reactive and just trying different things and uh, faking it like till you make it or what you said earlier was, uh, what was your quote? Uh, get in over your head. It sounds like you're just getting in over your head and reacting to the world around you. At what point did you start getting intentional and start getting strategic about what you're going to do to really scale a restaurant group? Um, well, basically, I think once uh, my friend and business partner, Danny, was moving to New York, that was when things started to get intentional because it was actually like, well, let's raise some money. Let's open a restaurant. He had always wanted to open in New York because um, he had some um, you know, powerful formative experiences there. And so he kind of wanted to go back there, uh, which I fully supported. Uh, Say that again. He had, he had what kind of experiences? Powerful what? Uh, like formative experiences. Like he was a line cook and and there were like you know kind of like macho cokehead line cooks like uh basically like <laughs> um you know being really mean and and hazing him and stuff and so he kind of i think like had this idea like you know i want to i want to go back to new york and like show them like not literally show those dudes but just like show new york that i can make it so he had issues in New York before coming to San Francisco uh, and he wanted to go back home to show people that we're giving him a hard time before that he had the chops that he could. Yeah, I mean, like not again, not literally those people, but kind of just prove to himself. Okay. That, you know, New York, 
So I'm a huge advocate for finding the right partners. And I think today in today's market, you need partnerships to be successful because of how competitive is is out there. Like you need to be in your lane and find other people to be in their lane. So how did you find Danny as a business partner? And what was it about him that uh, attracted uh, him to you and vice versa? Well, again, that, so we, we did a pop-up with a guest chef every Thursday and every Saturday and ended up doing 140 events that way. And so, you know, I'm an introverted guy who probably like started cooking to like not make small talk with people and ended up meeting like a hundred different chefs. And so Danny was attracted to the kind of democracy and openness and, you know, kind of, uh, whatever radical spirit of just like serving whatever you wanted from a restaurant and changing the menu every night and stuff. And so, you know, not just changing the menu, but changing the whole like cuisine every night. Um, so, I mean, he, he was on board uh, and he asked if he could, I mean, first he did a guest chef night then he did another and another. And then he was like, you know, we decided that he would be my sous chef. Then we basically were co-chefs. And then when Mission Street, Mission Chinese Food started, then I kind of moved into like the front of house and he became the chef. Okay. So I introduced you earlier as Chef Anthony Mint. Is that, was that weird for you or do you consider yourself more of a front of house restaurateur type or? I mean, you know, it depends. Uh, I, I'm at Mission Chinese in the kitchen two days a week right now. Um, so, I mean, technically I'm co-chef there. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I feel like the term chef does not need to be limited to, like, who's literally designing the menu. You know, in a lot of ways, it can be who is, like, uh, leading the uh, identity of the restaurant. You know, and in the case of fish and Chinese food and the perennial and stuff, I feel like, you know, we have a really, really strong identity at both restaurants. Okay. So um, let's dive deeper into this relationship. Um, he was serving as a guest chef uh you guys seem to get along in the idea of making him uh, a partner or a sous chef at the time what was it sous chef is that what it was i mean initially yeah okay um well, chef. dive into this relationship that what was it about your relationship that made this work well uh how how did you guys get on uh identifying your certain lanes and just dive into that 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 relationship um i think both of us just had like incredible work ethic uh, super open-minded and, you know, really just wanting to learn and kind of have fun with cooking and food. And so a situation where you're just going to do this menu once really lends itself to like going all in, working as hard as you can on that. And then eventually having like no pressure in a way, because if it doesn't work out, you're not doing it again tomorrow anyway. Um, so you really can like develop your own systems, you know, like, are we going to make little kits here? Are we going to put charcoal in the wok and put a grill over it and then use the heat of the wok to like keep the coals hot? You know, we got to serve 50 of this dish and we only have like, you know, two square feet to like plate. How are we going to do that? And so it, like, that's kind of the get in over your head thing where like, there's not a chef telling you like, okay, here's how we're going to do it. And you thinking like, are you sure that's the right way to do it? Could we be more efficient this way? You know, it's just sort of like, okay, in like one minute, we're going to serve, you know, it's going to start and we're going to like have to figure it out. And so that's, you know, it's fun and scary. And I think 
uh, I think we both thrived in that environment. Okay. So ultimately you made the decision to uh, start instead of early on, you were just super creative, trying different things, different, uh, whatever came across your mind or whatever chef came across your table, but you started getting more intentional and saying, Hey, like we, we have only a certain uh, um, amount of resources to work with as far as the, the outlay of our kitchen. We might as well lean into the cuisine that our kitchens can best support. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, totally. So it was like multiple things. Uh, we had started doing what we call, I mean, first of all, if you're trying to like come up with a whole new menu and write a compelling blog about it each week, it's a lot of work for so long. It's, yeah. you, know, you start to run out of ideas and stuff. And so we, at some point started doing what was, what it was Danny's idea. Uh, we called it the homage series. So then we would look at pictures of food from like Noma or Bocuse or whatever, and try to recreate those dishes in the shitty Chinese restaurant. And so it was kind of like, you know, for us that was like, okay, now we're in like grad school. <laughs> we're yeah. like, you know, we're moving up a level and trying to do these things like, uh, you know, ox tartare with like, Parsley and oyster emulsion and wood sorrel from Noma. Jeez, how the hell would you even make that? You know, so our, <laughs> we're like poaching mussels and or poaching oysters and blending it up with parsley and figuring things out. You know, whatever. Of course, it's not as good as Noma, but it's sort of fun to like imagine. You know, to kind of like try to DIY the dishes. I can't um, help but think of uh, Eric Reese's the lean startup business model of just starting something and getting creative. Uh, testing things and over time developing that clarity of what it is as things start to stick. Uh, and I think that's one of the benefits of a, of a pop-up is you can get super creative. You can, uh, d- you know, use your restaurant to basically, like you said, get your graduate degree, right. And really just uh, get that, that to, to find yourself in to evolve as a chef and to also test the market, right. What works. Uh, so I mean, it's, that's really interesting. It's, it's an interesting story. So, um, when so did we were doing that and then we basically, you know, that's really, really hard <laughs> because oh, yeah. we're setting the ball super high and like we were pushing really, really hard. And so basically eventually it became like, you know, we can't keep this up. This is like too hard. Plus who, you know, who's the next Omar chef, who's the next whatever. And it just, it was very challenging. So basically at one point, um, Danny went and got married. Uh, I was almost going to leave the city with my wife for academia and then basically we all came back and we're like okay we're not leaving actually and then you know we kind of thought well we can't do that like crazy stuff all every week again <laughs> like that was too hard so why don't we just use the walks as walks gotcha and we've also been like you know on our day off we would always go to like Sichuan Chinese restaurants and we really loved like you know Sichuan peppercorn and spicy food and sort of like just the idea of like how come how come you can't get that in fine dining? How come there's no fine dining spicy food? That's crazy. And so obviously it's not like it was gonna be a fine dining restaurant, but couldn't it involve some of the techniques of fine dining? It's kind of like the uh, spirit of like Sichuan Chinese food, you know, but also Japanese and other things and Italian and food or whatever, but um, you know, and then incorporate that in this weird hole in the wall restaurant with no rules. So in 2012, you opened the second location in New York city. By this time, was your brand uh, defined? Did you guys know exactly what you were going to do? Did you have a strategy, a plan to execute in New York? Sure. I mean, you know, the strategy 
was with beer garden. And so we didn't even know that stuff when we started. Um, so we, you know, we got, we didn't expect to immediately like go to New York and be successful, but prior to opening, it was like the number one most anticipated restaurant on eater.com. Um, so we just like, you know, again, just jumped right into the fire and, you know, I, I wasn't there in New York when Danny was doing all this stuff, but I think it was very hectic <laughs> for him. So I'm curious, what do you think, if you could identify what it was that you were doing right, that was garnering you all this attention, all these accolades, all this notoriety, like what was your involvement with the media? Like, what do you think it was that drew all this attention? I mean, the food was great, obviously, but what other variables were you doing? You know, I think it was like the perfect storm of the right place, the right time and enough like talent and grit or whatever to like seize those opportunities. So, you know, uh, if you think back to them, there really wasn't like a lot of like Asian, what is now kind of called Asian hipster cuisine or whatever. Um, so mission Chinese food was probably the first, if you think back to them, I, you know, I don't know this, but I feel like there was not really a lot of attitude in fine dining or like the mid level. Um, it was kind of like white tablecloth or sometimes not white tablecloth, you know, but, but it wasn't like people were playing like gangster rap in the dining room at, at a Michelin star place. It wasn't like, you know, uh, people were like having a lot of fun with it and just being like um, irreverent or whatever. And so there was definitely like an irreverence that I think captured some of the imagination of like young people eating out. So it sounds like you just stood out. It sounds like you were just doing what you did and you're being authentic to yourself, but you weren't kind of, you were zigging when everyone else was zagging. You weren't going with the flow. You were going against the flow, just doing your own thing. So you could be unique. Is that safe to say? I think that's safe to say. And I think it's also just like, I think the restaurant world sort of blew up around the same time. Like, you know, I don't know if young people, people who are like 25 were like so into food 10 years earlier. And so I think as that was trending up, you know, social media was trending up and like this open-mindedness just happened at the right time. Okay, cool. So 2013, you opened Mission Cantina. Um, was that the next project or was there something in between here? Uh, kind of just take it from there and, and kind of share your evolution. Um, well, Danny was, uh, he and his wife had a baby. We were relocating Mission Chinese Food because um, some health permit challenges with the original space. And then he was also opening Mission Cantina. And I think that ended up closing, I think, in a lot of ways. It was just kind of rushed and not really, you know, I think it's a good lesson in like um, focusing on what's important. So you you would say you weren't focusing on what was important? Um, I would say it was trying to, we were, or Danny specifically was like trying to do too much. Okay. Uh, really get into the detail of uh, how you guys learned this. Like what was happening? What were the, the challenges? What did you have to overcome to figure this out? Well, I mean, we learned it because we closed the restaurant. Okay. Uh, I was curious about that because um, I didn't see anything in the quick research. So uh, take us through that, that failure, like the lessons learned, things you would have done differently knowing what you know today. Um, well, honestly, one of the main reasons <clears throat> that it closed is um, 
kind of the lead investor and the realtor made a mistake. And so the restaurant had a like $250,000 tax lien on it outstanding. And normally like if you take over a new restaurant, that's not part of your baggage. That's like the previous operator's baggage. Um, but again, something went wrong with like the real estate deal. And so, so that was on the restaurant. And so all of a sudden one day, like the bank account went from like 40,000 to zero because the state just like seized all our money because the previous operators were delinquent. And so we just, you know, it's hard enough to run a restaurant, much less with like an extra $250,000 liability or <laughs> yeah. whatever. So, so uh, what would you have done differently? Would, would you have been more, uh, I guess, aware of the, the details of the transaction or the details of the, of the, the deal? Was there a, an agreement you could have gone through better? Like where did it say that you were going to be re- liable for this tax deficit? Uh, was it in a, was it in like a, a document that you signed or something? Yeah. I mean, well, it just, it's kind of like part of due process, but I think people were rushing and that was unexpected. And, you know, ultimately it was probably just legal malpractice. Like the lawyer and realtor who closed the deal should have, that's their whole job is to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, So anyway, like that's kind of boring. It is boring, but there's lessons here. And that's part of the the mission of this podcast is to dive into the good and bad. You guys have had a a ton of successes, but the other reality is not even the most successful restaurateurs close restaurants. Uh, And that's the reality of the business. Not everything you do is going to be a home run. And is is it a real failure if you learn something from that experience? And that's what I'm trying to do is just pull out the lesson. So I really, um, I mean, it sounds like you did everything right. You got the lawyer, lawyer, you, you had, you hired the people to be on your team to do this stuff. They just they just missed it. Yeah, more or less. That stinks, man. Any other big lessons from this experience? Um, well, I mean, I think it also just leads me to the conclusion that uh, success or failure is not about like more locations or more trying out a new idea or these things. You know, for me, success is about the restaurant uh, accomplishing what I believe in. Yes. Which is a great transition because it was around this time, 2014 that you started having the, the vision to, uh, of making more of an impact. Right. So how did you start changing? How did you transform at this point? How are you living? Um, so in 2012, my wife and I had a daughter. Uh, so she's six now doing great. Uh, her name's Aviva. And you know, when you're sitting there holding like this little baby, feeding her like literally like one spoon of avocado or something like that. You know, it, it just really feels like, man, food is crucial. and Nutrition is important. What's the future going to look like? What about climate change? Geez, like the restaurant industry and food is such a big part of climate change. You know, if because of mission Chinese foods at the time, like meteoric success, I'm sitting here like drinking a beer with, when I read Zephyr, kicking a soccer ball around with Massimo Bottura or something like totally unearned in terms of like cooking chops, but just like by accident, we backdoored it and are in that room. We should use that access to shift the industry. Like if not us, then who else is going to do it? Yeah. And I love that mentality of if not us, who else is going to do it? We often kind of get caught up and uh, guilty of just pointing the finger like finger like somebody's got to do something about this, but nobody ever stepped up to the plate. But if we all step up to the plate together and we all bear a little bit of that load, 
we can accomplish so much more, which again, brings it back to what we were talking about earlier today. The, the, the power of media today to share knowledge, to influence one another, to create businesses that aren't just about serving food, but to serve a mission uh, and to create awareness around these issues through our business. So how did you, what was your approach to using um, let's, I guess now is a good time to start talking about perennial, the, the, the business that you created to what is perennial dive into the mission behind perennial. Tell us about that opening that restaurant. Sure. So uh, I think what we're doing is twofold. Uh, one is a nonprofit called zero food print and one is the perennial. And so I'll just go super quick on it. Real quick. Zero- this is 2015, 2016, Around the um, times when you were playing? We print started in 2014. And around that time, we also started working on the perennial, but the restaurant did not open until 2016. Okay, cool. So take it from there. Okay, so Zero Food Print is basically trying to establish the category of carbon neutral dining. Um, so now it is, that word is like more well known. Like San Francisco has pledged to go carbon neutral by 2050. Uh, Lyft, the car company, has just gone carbon neutral. There's a lot of like tech companies and businesses that are either carbon neutral or like striving towards that. Cities are you know, Vancouver, Seattle, all these different cities have climate goals that are centered around like lower carbon or carbon neutrality. And so, again, if food is a big part of the problem, can some of the best restaurants, one percent of restaurants, even uh, be carbon neutral? And can diners choose those restaurants on the basis of that? So imagine if there's a category on Yelp, let's say, for carbon neutral. Uh, you know, you're looking at where to eat, Italian, sports bar, carbon neutral. If just a few more people chose that category, that would justify the whole cost of, of that kind of commitment from the chef or the restaurant. Um, at Mission Chinese Food, it's 10 cents per diner for the restaurant to be carbon neutral. Uh, so that's like almost nothing. I can't imagine anybody not eating at Mission Chinese Food because we did that. Um, there's an amazing restaurant in San Francisco, Bennu, Chef Corey Lee. Uh, he took all his restaurants carbon neutral. Uh, at Bennu, the meal is $295 or something like that. It's an amazing meal of a lifetime. Uh, for, for Bennu, to be carbon neutral is $0.35 cents per diner. And so, again, this feels like there is a very plausible business case. So it's pretty, it's pretty convenient, and it's, it's a pretty modest cost you're doing something major like over the course of the year that kind of aggregates to like thousands of dollars. And, and I think that there's a real marketing case or there, there will be soon. So real quick, um, define what a carbon neutral restaurant is. Get that clarity from my listeners. Sure. So the participating restaurants conduct a life cycle assessment. Uh, there we're working with an organization called three degrees Inc, which is the company that helped lift go carbon neutral. So basically, they've now done about 25 or 30 life cycle assessments of restaurants. What that is, is like they look at all the ingredients you used. You know, you basically like take inventory of what you use for a month. They look at all your energy use, your laundry, your waste hauling. Like is the restaurant composting? You know, what's happening with fryer oil? How much gas are you using? These kinds of things. Then they give you a an total carbon footprint. So at Mission Chinese Food, you know, whatever year we did the assessment a couple of years ago, Total carbon footprint is 612 tons of carbon for the year. You get a pie chart, you get more data, like 75% of that is from ingredients, 37% of that is from beef that comes from feedlots, uh, and then 
you can do whatever you want with it. You know, we, we were lucky. We had a fridge that was off the charts. It was like using 18 kilowatts per hour instead of four. So we qualified for like some program where the local utility company just gave us a free fridge um, just to replace it and kind of paid for it through the uh, energy savings. You know, we started switching to as much grass-fed beef as we could. We charged an extra dollar um, for beef dishes, you know, and these kinds of things where you make whatever changes you want, but at the end of the day, it's still a Chinese restaurant driving food around the city to people and, you know, serving cheap beer and different stuff. And so, so there's going to be a carbon footprint. What can we do about that? And I think here is where there's where we're like treading in new ideological ground in a way, because we're trying to create a renewable food system. And so if you think about like solar panels and these kinds of things that did not spread rapidly because you're asking like every single like lazy house dad or whoever, you know, to like get off their couch and put solar panels on the roof. That would not work. That spreads because the utilities company allows you to pay like 10 bucks more a month or whatever to fund the shift to renewable energy. So we need a food system that is following a similar principle where it's not just Chez Panisse, it's not just Blue Hill at Stone Barns, you know, it's not just sourcing well, it's Shake Shack sending 10 cents per burger towards improving beef production in the supply chain. Okay, got you. So uh, you mentioned earlier uh, there's a certain amount, a certain uh, dollar amount, or I think it was like 35 cents or 65 cents for every. Yeah. Yeah. So real quick, uh, how do you come up with this number, this this annual sum? How do you get to that number? Um, So the Company Three Degrees Inc. conducts a life cycle assessment. Okay. And then they basically, there's a whole system called the voluntary carbon market. And so, in some ways, that would be like the Dow Jones of carbon trading. So, there's projects on the market that are like, you know, plant a thousand trees in whatever national park that has a certain money that's not going to happen unless someone puts up some money. So, like a company like Google or something trying to offset its servers throw a million bucks at a project like that that has some environmental benefit somewhere else and then they claim that kind of carbon benefit from it towards their carbon reduction goals. I want to make sure and I understand real quick. So so basically you're, you're going to have some, there's going to be some byproduct, some negative effect to your business and you're what you're doing is you're determining exactly what the value, the cost of that negative effect is and then you're finding ways to match, you're getting creative to match uh, your, I guess, uh, what's the word? Um, deficiency uh, with by by contributing some kind of positive uh, by raising the money to uh, offset the negative impact. Yeah, so it's it's literally called carbon offsets. Okay, and so this is a thing where in like industry and business, and not so common in the food industry. Definitely not common at like the small individual chef or restaurant level. So first of all, we're kind of like engaging chefs on that, but then second of all, making it very we're almost like platter so all they have to do is be like okay i'm in you know and then and then start sending money to the projects okay so um and you started getting into it before there's different ways to uh offset uh you can do a lump sum every year or for every transaction a certain percentage or like a a dollar amount goes back to the till uh what's the most what's the the i guess the most common way you've seen people uh, get creative or the, the best practice for offsetting your, uh, the, the, I guess your negative impact. 
Well, I think the best way is to like add a small surcharge on an item or else make it the default and the customer contributes a little bit, but the customer has not the ability to opt out. You know, uh, a dollar from every cheeseburger goes towards carbon offsets, towards like, you know, something, some environmental project. And then the cost is kind of like embedded in a product, in a product that someone buys. There's a little bit of awareness there. Oh, what is that? What are you guys doing? Oh, you're supporting the environment. Oh, cool. Whatever. Um, or there's like, you could imagine at the bottom of the check, you know, uh, Joe's Cafe is carbon neutral. 25 cents from each meal is going towards environmental projects that uh, reverse greenhouse gases in the food system. You know, if you'd rather not participate, just check the box and we won't charge you. Like the restaurant is not paying out of pocket for it. The customer is paying, but if the customer doesn't even feel like it, then they can just check the box. Awesome. On top of all this, it's really interesting because you can use this effort to serve as also a marketing, uh, I guess, I don't know, like I'm trying to define them at a loss of the right words, but you're doing good. Doing good is good business and you can not just do it, but you can use what you're doing to be a positive reflection on your business and use it as a marketing. Uh, I don't want to say marketing. What's the word? Marketing uh, strategy, I guess, uh, to to put those good vibes, to draw people into your restaurant that have the same values that you have and that want to make a difference. You can target these people who are trying to be change makers falls broadly into this category of social entrepreneurship. Yes. Um, but then I think you should be able to market if you're doing good things. And at the moment, it's a little bit hard. Like if you're sourcing well, if you're supporting a good farm, this kind of thing, it's not like direct money <laughs> that is like yeah. going towards solving a problem. It's, it's kind of like an abstract good. And I feel like this makes things very, very legible. The restaurant is carbon neutral. Wow. That's like, that's a real, you know, that's a threshold of sustainability that you can stand behind, but it's not, I'm serving like sustainable fish and then, oh, also like 400 burgers a week from a feedlot, you know, so it, it's very clear what is going on here, but you're not asking a restaurant to reinvent itself either. Like, oh, you're, you know, I need to serve a burger to stay in business. You know, I can't just sell tofu sandwiches or salads or whatever like you do. And then this is this is a simple solution to what you can do that is having like a major positive impact in the system. I think it sounds like you're you're creating a situation where making change is more possible. You're, you're creating the systems, the processes for people to get signed up to to start making change. Before there was no easy, uh, the work hadn't been done to to have a system to do this seamlessly. But now that that system has been played been put in place where people can just get on board and contribute, uh, you're, you're creating a path of least resistance for change to happen. Yeah, totally. And I mean, again, this is where that access to some of the world's best chefs comes into play because some of the world's best restaurants are carbon neutral Fire, you know, many restaurants to do that. Beautiful, man. Um, I love what you guys are doing. Any other thoughts, any other th- things at the top of your mind that you want to get out and share with my audience before we move to the speed round? Shit, man. Way too many things. Um, so we didn't even get into the perennial. So create a movement in the industry where restaurants can be part of the solution to climate change. The perennial is sort of like an exploration into what that would look like if a restaurant were prioritizing sustainability and deliciousness and fun and stuff. 
what we learned over the course of getting this off the ground and meeting a lot of farmers and ranchers is that there is like the biggest disparity in the world right now in the food system. Um, so think for a second about how much healthy soil. Like if you, first of all, how would you even know? Wait, but, real quick, like, uh, think about how much something soil you broke up a little bit. Oh yeah, sorry. Uh, okay, so here's like the, I'll say trillion dollar question. Think about how much food is what percent of the food in the U.S. is produced in healthy soil? You know, first of all, how would you even know what is healthy soil? Okay, so organic represents 5% of the home market in the U.S. So after 40 years of existence, organic is 5%. A lot of organic food is not necessarily not using banned chemicals. You know, like, you know this too. When you go have a certified organic cherry tomato from like an awesome farm, it's amazing. If you have one that's certified organic for like about 50 at some store, it's not so good. It's not because the one from the farm is fresh. It's because the one from the farm is grown in healthy soil. And so we've done a lot of work talking with soil scientists and farmers and all these things. And we actually know the answer. And it's simple. It's soil that has a lot of living things in it. There's a number on every farmer's standard soil test called soil organic matter. And that is literally what it says, things in the soil. So bad farm probably has like 1% soil organic matter. A good farm might have 5, 6, 10% soil organic matter. And in a lot of ways, this is like, to me, it's like the GPA and the chef and the consumer is like the college admissions officer. And so we're in a system now where we're making all these decisions and we don't have the GPA. So we don't have a way to track uh, and score each other. So we, we know what kind of uh, impact, what kind of, we need, we need to be able to put numbers to this. The data. Yeah. Because they're doing their own, testing, but nobody is asking for the data. There's not like a, you know, a guide. So we're working on that. Beautiful. Uh, but, you know, I could tell you about that for, 30 more minutes. Yeah. Uh, but then along these lines, what is exciting from a climate, all these developments in farming that can reverse climate change. And so going back to some of these renewable energy comparisons, it's not like soil scientists and farmers invented the electric car. It's like they invented an electric car that has a bioreactor and can take greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and turn it into fuel for the car. So it's like, you know, a million times better than just farming that doesn't hurt the environment. And it make and it's also like just very simple and straightforward. We all understand like, okay, planting trees is good. I, I understand that that is like taking, you know, greenhouse gases are coming out of the atmosphere and becoming a tree, uh, becoming biomass. That same principle applies everywhere to soil. Uh, there's tons of microbiology in any given acre of soil and if we're increasing that through better farming practices, we're taking. And unlike planting trees, where you're kind of like taking land out of capitalism and circulation, this land is already being used for farming, and we just need to use it more effectively, more, you know, more uh, naturally, 
more naturally, really, farming with nature. Um, and so for me, this is like completely insane. These lines, you know, I, I was not thinking along these lines five years ago, but like it's, it's such a slap in the face. It's like, uh, it's not even like the elephant in the room. It's like, we're all standing on the elephant. This is like the biggest news and the most exciting news, I would say, that farming is not like we need farm to table 2.0, um, where it's not just like know the farmer and some quaint. Farming is literally saving an acre of the world at a time, and it is making it carbon beneficial. It's yeah. taking greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere and putting it back into the soil where it holds more water, makes more nutrient-dense food, makes more delicious food, you know, while also... Can we make that happen as a whole system? Yes. Uh, and you have a really great Google Talks video out there. I'll make sure the link to that in the show notes uh, where you and your wife uh, really break down the details of the things we can do to start making an impact and start making a change. Uh, you have great visuals too in that video. So I'll be sure to link to that because the audio quality is a little choppy right now. I think we're, we're picking up what you're putting down. Uh, but in case uh, you guys want to take this further and really uh, see what – it is that Anthony's talking about. Check out that video. Um, and also, uh, you list a couple of books uh, that are great places to start to learn more about this. I know one book that I recently read, The Third Plate, uh, really dives into this concept of uh, the the future of farming needs to be farming uh, where we're, we're not trying to control nature, but we're working in synergy with nature, beside nature, in a way that is natural. Uh, and once we get to that point where we're not necessarily trying to control nature, but let's let nature do its thing and then react to it in a way that's best for, for the world. Uh, that's when things start to take off. Did I say that right? Is that a good way to explain it? I think that's dead on, but I would say that. So even since that Google talk, Hey, real quick, Anthony, no, that was like Anthony, real quick. Ago. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to kill your video. Cause maybe that's part of the issue. So, Kill your video, and maybe you'll come in a little bit more smoothly. All right. Pick up what you're going to say. Yeah, just super quick. Um, Even since that Google talk, I feel like we've learned an immense amount. Um, So I want to just, like, talk about two items really quick. Um, So at the Perennial, we're sourcing beef from this ranch called Stemple Creek Ranch. And one-tenth of the ranch, 350 acres, is part of a carbon farming protocol uh, that is kind of overseen by a local nonprofit called the Marine Carbon Project. So on that 350 acres, compost was applied five years ago, and then the way the cattle graze is called managed grazing. Uh, technically, it's called adaptive multi-paddock grazing, and let's just call it managed grazing. So that is basically like they split it into 100 little fields with portable electric fences, just like a little wire between the field. Cattle graze, they're pooping, peeing, stomping it in, nibbling in one place. Open the, you know, wire. The next day they move to the next paddock. A hundred days later, they come back to that first one and it's way more productive, way better off. And the compost application is actually like the biggest thing here. That somehow like jumpstarts the restoration of the land and makes it like, you know, 10x more beneficial than just managed grazing alone. 
So that 350 acres from this pilot project, you know, soil scientists, biogeochemists from UC Berkeley are testing this stuff. And it has had the same benefit as not burning 1 million gallons of gas. Wow, man. So they expect that benefit to continue for another 30 years. That's incredible. So it sounds like what you're doing is you're just isolating these animals to one uh, restricted area. So the process happens faster. So all that nutrients is going into a a smaller area area instead of being spread throughout a larger surface area over time. Yeah. So basically this is the perfect example of farming with nature. Mm -hmm. Um, So the land used to have bison on it and supposedly there are fewer pounds of cows in the U S today than there used to be of bison. Mm. That's scary. I mean, think about that for a minute, even with our population, even with everybody eating burgers and all this stuff, feedlots, industrial farming, there's still less cows than there used to be bison. Man. Manure a day. Okay, so a few cows is literally like shit tons of fertilizer that used to be going into the land, got taken off the land. That land is too dry. You can't grow tomatoes and tofu and you know corn and stuff on that land. It's only good for grazing. And so people who think like, oh, we got to eat less beef, they're completely right when it comes to beef raised in feedlots because that beef is full of antibiotics. The manure is full of antibiotics. It cannot be used for fertilizer. But grass-fed beef is like a whole different ballgame. It's utilizing land that can't be used otherwise to create delicious and satisfying and nutritious food. And then what we're talking about here is actually like grass-fed 2.0, where it's like you're not just the cow, the cows aren't just out there doing whatever they want. You're managing the situation to kind of optimize productivity and restoration. And so the, that, that's one-tenth of one ranch, and that's one two millionth of all the acres in the U.S. Man, and was this, you said you want to share one of two things. Was that all one of those? I want to make sure we get the second thing, too. So that's one of the things. And then just like quickly, too, that 760 million acres of pasture, a lot of it feeds into feedlots. Ultimately, the cows start on pasture for a year, then move into the feedlot. And so the exciting thing is that we're not just talking about the beef that Dan Barber is going to serve at Blue Hill someday. We're talking about the beef that is going to go into the burger at Shake Shack could be carbon ranched for the time that it's on pasture before it goes into the feedlot. So you're not even asking everybody to like reinvent themselves. We're saying let's fund the transition of the management on those acres, whether you're at the Michelin restaurant or the fast food restaurant, this affects everybody. And here's a clear path forward, man, that would be huge. And you keep on using uh, shake shack as an example is uh union square hospitality and Danny Meyer. Are they, is this on their radar? Are they taking actions to be a part of this movement? I don't know. Can you get them to be on the right <laughs> on the radar like that? Uh, that's it the whole goal. It totally like, aligns with everything that he stands for as a, you know, in his, like what they do with the night in hospitality, taking care of being hospitable towards the community. Uh, so I wouldn't see why they wouldn't be on board with something like this. Um, I don't know if I have that much weight. I can't even get him as a guest on the show, but we'll see. Uh, 
I don't know what any other closing thoughts. I'm really loving this conversation, by the way. And I think, you know, it's important that we share, we, we, we put people like you in front of the world because you are setting the standard and we need to share this kind of content. We need to make this type of knowledge accessible to everybody. If, the, if it's really going to take a, 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 you know, a, a swing at making long lasting change. Uh, any other cl- closing thoughts before we move to the speed round? Yeah, I'm sorry to keep doing more things, but basically, no, I love the, it, man. The other thing that I wanted to share was, so at the perennial, we're serving this beef. We're also making uh, sourdough every day out of a perennial grain called Kernza, which is spelled K E R N Z A kind of like corn kernel. And so I glossed over a term there, perennial grain. 500 million acres planted with wheat used to be planted or like used to be perennial prairies where there were grasses and different things growing there, some of which were perennial. And what that means is it lives from year to year, quite simply. So there's, you know, trees are perennial, apple trees, hazelnut tree, whatever. Not very much food is perennial. Tomatoes are, are not, you know, unless they like happen to self-seed and grow another tomato. Um, but for the most part, the way farming works is we plow up the land to grow food. This is the first of what will be many perennial crops. So 50 years from now, there will be perennial rice and perennial wheat and these kinds of things. It takes a long time to develop this through natural breeding. Um, and so this is the first perennial staple crop, and it's a, it's a perennial wheatgrass that a nonprofit in the Midwest has been conducting natural breeding um, for the last 15 years, comparable to wheat, uh, approaching the yield of wheat. And so at the moment, they, its yield is like 30% compared to wheat. But that yield increases 10% each year through natural breeding efforts. So I think you can draw another direct parallel between like solar panels and food, like renewable energy and food. Solar panels didn't, were not as productive as fossil fuels before. It was not economically competitive. But through a lot of like support, investment, research, etc., it became competitive. Now renewable energy is sort of like inevitable. It's it's achieved parity. It's just a matter of like how quickly we can transition. The food system is in a similar place because of products like this, and I think it really underscores that we're not talking about some quaint farm-to-table thing. We're talking about companies like General Mills and Patagonia starting to support this kind of product and we need that at every level we need the best chefs in the world saying like i'll pay two dollars more for kernza because otherwise no one's going to plant it the farmer who's planting wheat has the wheat is crop insured so no matter what happens, they don't have that insurance so they need the economic signal they need someone to pay more for it yeah Man, I love what you're doing, and I'm honored to be making an example of your efforts today. And uh, I think, like you mentioned, um, it takes time. But the more and more people that get behind this, the more effort, the more energy that goes into this transformation, the faster it will happen. And like we mentioned er even earlier, today is such a hopeful time because of resources like podcasts and YouTube and social media with people sharing really great knowledge like TED TED Talks. Uh, So, you know really start to consider what we've been discussing today. And also if you head over to um, your website, uh, the food, uh, zero food, I want to say zero footprint every time. So if you head over to zero footprint, uh, dot net, is it? 
uh, .org. .org. Uh, so org. you really dive into uh, how we can start implementing these systems into our business where we are uh, offsetting our carbon footprint. Yes? Yes. So offsetting the carbon footprint and then eventually those funds being aggregated to help transition farms and into carbon ranches and transition wheat fields into perennial grain fields. So is there a community that we can join like a Facebook group or anything like that where uh, we can kind of stay connected and informed of uh, events happening, things we can do to start making an impact? Um, I mean, probably it's just like the, the zero food print Facebook and the perennial uh, restaurant Facebook. Yeah. And then also start educating yourself. Um, and maybe once we finish up the, the speed round, you can share some books that people can uh, dive into to really better understand everything you've been sharing with us today. Uh, so we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. and I'll be right back. Finally, a simple, affordable, and legal way to share the music that best represents your brand. It's called Soundtrack Your Brand. Get access to soundtracks tailored for any business. Side note, studies have shown that playing the right music can impact your sales. Do you have questions about what that right music is? Soundtrack Your Brand can help you there too. Here's a fun fact. I'm sure a lot of you out there listening to this already have a Spotify account. Well, you can take playlists from your account and import them directly into SoundtrackYourBrand.com. And my guests are always saying on the show that their restaurants are an extension of their own personal brand. Well, so isn't your music. And now you can marry these things together legally. Unlike Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Music, Soundtrack Your Brand is licensed for business use. Skip the hassle of ASCAP and BMI because with Soundtrack Your Brand, it's already included. You can even schedule music for the whole week and adapt the music for each day part. Typically, this deal goes for $26.99 per month, but if you act now before the end of August, you can get this deal for $19.99 per location per month for life. Again, that's SoundtrackYourBrand.com or find the banner in the show notes. Your job as a restaurant owner or manager is to paint a picture of the job done right and to empower your employees with the tools and knowledge they need to excel. This is why you need to check out Wisetail, a premier learning management system trusted by our industry's most recognized names. With Wisetail, quickly scale your training initiatives across all locations, empower your employees to take control of their own learning and professional growth, foster communication and engagement through their integrated training and communication tools and ensure long-term scalable success with the help of their best in breed client experience team. They'll take you from goal setting and implementation to ongoing strategy and best practices training to make sure you maximize your ongoing investment in your training and your programs. And if you use my links, you'll get your first three months free after signing up for a year contract. Again, that's wisetail.com slash unstoppable or find the banner in the show notes. And we're back. The first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success. Uh, I'd say open-mindedness. Open-mindedness. And I'm going to say just having a desire to, to not necessarily uh, to, to exist, to do the right thing uh, for everyone, that, that, that altruistic approach to life, which I think is just invaluable. Uh, what is your biggest weakness? Um, over committing. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? Sense of humor. 
what is your biggest challenge today? Uh, making ends meet. Mm. While trying to do the right thing, right? It's not easy doing yeah. the right thing. <laughs> I mean, I, I get it. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. Um, probably respect and collaboration. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? Uh, I would say the golden rule. So really just trying to like gauge where people are at and meet them at that level. What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? And this is where you can Uh, make some of those recommendations that we were discussing earlier. Yeah, I'd say the most important book I've read maybe ever is a drawdown. Was that draw down? Draw down. Okay. And what's that? The premise of that book? Uh, the premise is scientists got 300 scientists for three years, did comprehensive analyses of what would be the solutions to climate change. And then they kind of like rank them and put numbers behind them and explain them. And of the top 25 solutions to climate change, some are things we know like solar panels and stuff. Uh, some are things we don't normally think of like educating girls and 11 of the top 25 solutions to climate change are food related. Wow. Uh, I'm, I just added that to my list cause I'm going to be reading that real soon. Uh, share one online resource or tool, uh, that you recommend, uh, that, that you use every day to kind of stay on top of all this stuff. Well, I can give you a link for a carbon footprint calculator that shows kind of the environmental impact of, of a bunch of different common ingredients. If you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you know to be true that you could leave behind for the good of humanity, for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Um, restaurants can be part of a renewable food system. And when you're, when you're thinking about food, you should think about healthy soil. Great stuff today, uh, Anthony. Just so grateful for you taking the time to join us to to share your story, to share your knowledge, to share what you're trying to do to make a a, a positive impact on this world. Uh, just real quick, what's the best way for us to connect with you again if we want to learn more and to find out how to get involved in what you're trying to do? Um, you can email me at anthony at theperennialsf.com. All right. And uh, we also wrap up every episode by calling somebody out. So who is one independent restaurant operator, somebody you admire who's doing it right. That needs to be made an example of on the show. That's how I found you. Chef Nate Tilden called uh, you out. Uh, I will call out Matt Orlando from Amos. Matt Orlando from Amos. Look out. I'm coming after you. And what is it about him that what, what's he doing? That needs to be made an example of. Um, he is doing amazing work on sustainability in restaurants in Copenhagen. Look out. I'm coming after you. And it just, again, thank you so much, Anthony, for taking the time to share your knowledge, your influence. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. There we go. Another episode in the bag here at restaurant unstoppable. And what did I tell you? Some great content in today's episode. Uh, again, I apologize for the Rocky audio quality, but it was worth powering through. I think you'll probably agree with me on that one. And early on in this conversation, some, some major takeaways. I think the big one from the big ones for me 
just starting, just tackling things, you know, head on, uh, creating opportunity for yourself, going to people and just getting creative, right? And then once you've found something, bringing other people in, sharing your platform with others, collaborating, not making it just about you, but making it about the community, other people, and doing things with others, and just having fun. And I think that his his early career is a great example of that. The other obvious part of today's conversation is this zero carbon footprint, right? Creating a zero carbon restaurant. And if you want to learn more about that, I encourage you to go over to zero food print that's f-o-o-d dot org he uh shares what he knows over there it's a great place to get started if you want to explore this and remember doing good is good business uh people want to get behind people other people that are doing good full transparency 100 disclosure it's gonna be hard you don't do this type of work because you're going to get rich. You do this type of work because you're going to make a difference and you're going to feel much better at the end of the day. You're going to lay on your deathbed going, man, I, I, I did good with my life. You know, I, I left this world a better place. And if that's what you're interested in, uh, then absolutely take this avenue. I realize it's not for everybody, but if, it, if more people start becoming aware of the impact they can make, the difference they can make, then together collectively will have much more energy and things will happen much faster so really do consider this stuff and if the audio quality really was a problem for you today i i really do apologize i thought about recording this twice but chef anthony mint is a busy man and i want to respect his time there is something you can do if you want to make sure we continue to have really great audio quality episodes. I don't know if you noticed, but the past 40 to 60 episodes have been amazing as far as audio quality goes. And that's because I've been literally traveling the country in my car, sleeping in my car multiple times to get this content. And we can get that high level that high level of content, that high level of quality if you support the podcast. And I don't I don't push this enough, but I really should. If you head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash support, you can donate to this mission of sharing the stories of people like or, or the stories from people like Anthony Mint. And that's the mission of this podcast is to find people like Anthony Mint who are trying to make a difference and to share their knowledge, to share their influence so we can spread the good, so more good can happen and we can transform the industry. If that mission resonates with you, if you want to get behind transforming the industry by sharing the stories and the knowledge from people like Anthony Mint, then please Head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash support. And if you want to learn more about zero carbon restaurants, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 535. I'll have the links in the show notes to everything you need to start digging deeper on this topic. All right, guys, thank you so much for sticking around this long. I love you all. Until next time, peace out.